Good morning and welcome to this week's episode of Ethically Amb- Ambiguous to Law Students Figuring Things Out. Uh, I'm your host this week, Tiffany, and joining me is my co-host, Lori. Hello, good morning. This week's topic is going to focus on the Conflicts Quartet. Uh, it's four cases decided by the Supreme Court in relation to conflict matters, um, both between clients, a lawyer's clients, and also between a lawyer and their client. So in reading these four cases, and starting off with McDonald Estate and Martin and going all the way through to uh, Queen and Neal, Strother and a numbered company, and CN Rail and Recurcher. What um, what would you say your impressions were overall, starting from um, McDonald and and to the end game in Recurcher? I think I was um, just generally. How do I put this? Like it was so interesting to see the law just like make these like incremental movements, just generally. Um, but it was also very interesting to see, you know, that how the like baseline principle behind the conflicts rule also kind of shifted. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I found myself somewhat agreeing with the dissent in uh, Martin a little more as I moved along in terms of um, I think it was Corey J. Uh, for the dissent in Martin said that they would have defi- they sorry they would have confined the scope of duty of conflict to the retainer, and I, I found myself agreeing with that more and more because honestly my my impression was that the protection got stronger and stronger and stronger to the point that it was almost it almost seems like it doesn't really. I don't see how it's going to work in modern day society where we're all so interconnected. And I mean, I'm sure you've had instances in your life where you've met somebody who knew somebody that knew somebody else and and was, and you make the comment, Oh, it's such a small world. Right. And yeah. And I felt like the stronger they got in the protection, the less uh, weight was even given to the choice, which I think the court mentioned that like that, the, the choice for the client and mobility of lawyers sort of falls secondary to the duty of loyalty, um, which I'm not necessarily disagreeing with. I just don't know if I agree fully to the extent that the court took it. And it, it almost felt in some ways they were ignoring the realities of our modern day world. And, or at least, I mean, the last case was decided in 2013. I mean, look at the situation that we're in now, this unprecedented pandemic that we're all faced with where many people are working from home. So you really could work from anywhere and work with anybody because you're not restricted to geographical issues. And so I think that increases the potential that you're going to come across people who are going to be in conflict with each other and to just like make it impossible as, as it almost feels like the the courts did um, that eventually we're going to get to a point maybe where um, you can't, you can't practice anymore. I don't know if that's like, that's maybe an extreme, but um, I just, uh, that's sort of the impression I got that it may, maybe it was a little too far. Right. Yeah. I do agree with that. And I think I keep coming back to Sapinka's points um, in McDonald estate. Um, Cause he kind of had like the big three concerns, which was the administration of justice. Um, that I constantly really focus on because I think that's kind of the baseline of the rule for all this. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, it's really hard to 
connect. And I think that, and I, I really appreciate the judges because I think they were going back and forth with all those facts. It was just, um, I think you also see in these cases, which is a bit bigger than our uh, conversation here today, but you get to see also um, how the members of the Supreme Court also really affect the law. So like once we got into some of the more, um, I guess, re recently from practice um, onto the judiciary, you kind of see a different kind of focus than you did on the original case of the quartet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, this underlying idea that I believe it was, um, who was that? I think it was in actually McDonald, um, where the law, oh, sorry, no, it was the dissent in McDonald mm -hmm. um, that said fundamentally it was important is that um, justice not only be done, but appear to be done in the eyes of the public. And so this, it seems like the perception is really what the courts are guarding against. And, and I don't disagree that that's, an, that's really important because while there may be no impropriety on the part of the lawyer and the client, if another party has that perception, that already damages what the court's trying to protect in a sense, this safeguard of solicitor-client privilege even. And if, if the public could be, or believes that a lawyer is not keeping confidence in for another client, then that erodes that solicitor client privilege. And that we've seen like in, in, in past episodes, we talked about how the courts go so far to um, protect the solicitor client privilege. But even in our past, in our previous episode, sorry, we discussed this idea of maybe again, that the courts went too far and it's sort of being um, counter intuitive in the sense that it, what it's trying to do is protect the administration of justice. But then I believe it was Katie had mentioned that it, it in some ways inhibits the administration of justice if the end result is that um, things can let slide that maybe shouldn't, like it's not about truth anymore and, and that type of thing, or justice. So anyways, these are just some uh, interesting things, thoughts that I had doing many of these readings and even in the discussions of the exercises with the group this, this uh, week. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. And I think I think a lot of the roots of these kind of questions are going to come back to the same like high level issues that we have in our perceptions of, of uh, the justice system and its purpose. Um, but I think it was really interesting. And I think it's also interesting when you talk about, because um, a couple of cases did, the loyalty to the client and the firm and like how that all those nuances kind of work. Um, and I think they were, I think the cases are really important to also like demonstrate again that when you're in, when you're working as a lawyer, you know, sometimes it feels like you're loyal, your loyalty should be with, you know, perhaps your firm or, or the people you're signing on with or et cetera. But I'm um, just re like making sure the, the nuances is, is very straightforward and being like, the duty is always the client, the client's your topmost um, participate in all of this and I don't know I thought that was also refreshing and interesting to hear the judge's per uh, perspective on that yeah, yeah that's, that's a good point, point. It's the point about the uh the comp the uh, this presumption that I, I can't remember who it was in what, in what case but this presumption that if the knowledge of one lawyer it translates basically to knowledge of the firm mm. that that if one lawyer understand or has this information in the in in confidential information sorry then the that could be imported to that the firm has that knowledge although if i'm not mistaken that um was maybe rebutted i i can't recall 
Yeah, I know. I'm looking at my notes now, and uh, let's see. Other interesting thing about these cases is uh, trying to decipher them all and how they work together, <laughs> uh, which I think I'm still trying to figure out. Um, I I did have an interesting point in Ontario and Chartist Insurance, where the court referenced Sapinka in the McDonald case, saying that it wasn't for the courts to develop these standards regarding the acceptable practices that can mitigate between clients. So, so for like example, the law society are really the, the appropriate governing bodies to develop these like ethical screens or, or put these measures in place that lawyers must take. But then uh, on the flip side of that, the, the case um, where the lawyer, the law society did in fact institute standards and the court held that while there was technical compliance with the guidelines, there was no compliance with the spirit, which kind of sounds like it's kind of interesting that the court's saying, no, we shouldn't be the right ones to develop this. But then the law society developed them, the client, the lawyer followed them. And then the court is still saying, well, yeah, maybe you uh, followed them technically, but not really the spirit. So it, it sounded to me like the court really wanted to articulate what those standards should be, but felt that that would be inappropriate. Did you get that sense at all? Or? Yeah, and I think that that's where um, you, you can't ignore the practicality of all this, right? Like, lawyers are so much more participating in the, this system than, like, than the, the court could ever judge, you know, doctors or engineers or any other uh, profession. And, I mean, that's, again, it's, you know, if you think about it too much, your brain will hurt because you're like, well, they're the system that, like, you know, <laughs> make sure the justice system works, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, I think it's really clear that because um, in, in a lot of ways, um, when you look at solicitor-client privilege and it's linked to the Constitution, or at least the recent link or the link that they've developed for themselves to the Constitution, um, quasi-constitutional mm-hmm. status, and you look at all these other you know ways that the court has tried to put this duty or duties associated with lawyers so integral to the system, but like, it doesn't not make sense. But... Yeah, it's, I think that's like also the big question, like when are you, you know, crossing that line from, you know, interpreting the statutes and the intention to like dictating what they, they those pieces must mean, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess maybe they're just saying, well, we wouldn't go out of our way to like create this like common law, you know, rules. But if you're going to put them on yeah. the paper, we're going to interpret them how we want to interpret them. But I don't know. <laughs> That, I mean, that's true. Like, that's essentially what the court's job is. It just, it sounds funny when they're like, you must create these two, you must create these guidelines. Oh, yeah, you did create them. Oh, yeah, you did follow them, but you didn't go with the spirit. So it's like, really, like, like, it was, it, it almost sounded like the court knew what it was looking for, but didn't articulate that. Yeah. and I, I, Or maybe it thought it had articulated it and the law society's got it wrong. Maybe that's really what they're saying. <laughs> right. Or I think it could also be um, the hesitancy of the courts to really like trust lawyers in a lot of ways, because the other thing is like <laughs> rule following is literally the job. And so I guess they don't want you to start treating these ethical codes unethically, like, you know, following the black and white, but not really participating in the way that the law society intended you to participate. Um, and I guess you could spend yeah. time pointing fingers on like who should have like stopped that loophole because it probably was the law society. They are also generally lawyers, but um, I don't know. Like, I vibe with the court in that one. Like I feel like yeah, like if you're gonna and and it's it's when you say a verb, like you know, it's like hard to imagine 
in like abstract what that could mean like following the spirit because you're like oh my god now i have these additional <laughs> invisible rules to follow on top of like the black and white rules. <laughs> um but i think it's like when you read it you got it you're like oh they're trying to prevent this but if you like you know yeah. skate your way around that to be like well technically i didn't break the rule the court's gonna be like dude no like <laughs> this is not how this is gonna work <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like they have um, the rule against like abusive process yeah. in that sense, where it's like, yeah, you followed, you have this process available to you and to follow. So, but that alone is not an argument that you follow these processes that were available to you. If you're found to be abusing them in a way that was never intended, the courts won't allow that to happen. I guess it's really that they're, um, they've seen enough in their day of really uh, lawyers who really smart and clever lawyers that um, sort of manipulate their way around the rules to the benefit of their client and maybe even to the benefit of the lawyer themselves. And they're just trying to um, like uh, stop those loopholes. Yeah. And I think you also uh, touched on a point that I (laughs) found really pointed in these, um, uh, in these decisions in a way that I, I I don't really remember feeling that things are as pointed for a long time. And again, I find and you know we're in third year i'm doing a lot of seminar course i'm not reading case law as much as i did like say in first year um but i was reading these and i was like man these 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 judges are thinking of specific lawyers when they're writing this paragraph like it's like (laughs) very pointed um and i just there's just a part of me that just felt like alive after reading them i was like interesting interesting you really you really you never know hey like where life's gonna take you the impression i'm like imagining like lawyers who've like um sat on the other side of these judges at some point in their life like reading and be like oh yeah that was that was my bad I definitely did that <laughs> but remember though go back to the um the comment that many of our, our professors have made have made that uh bad cases make bad law yeah. and so like if you know if you were to make up a, a law like directed at one particular instance and, and have one lawyer or a couple of lawyers in mind when when making these laws is that really is that really smart but you know to your point like it's you know you you know I guess when you violate the spirit and and yeah maybe it's not a you don't have the black and white rules but as as I'm sure like the impression that you're getting and and that I'm getting you know that the law is not black and white no and and certainly I think there are there are no hard and fast rules yeah and I certainly think when you're trying to guide the profession itself you really got to be you know stringent with these attentions because there's so few other ways that you can monitor lawyers and, and lawyers if you accept the premise yeah. that the Supreme Court is giving in these uh, cases is they have such power over how our society is going to function that they do need mm-hmm. you know these really clear uh, provisions of when they can operate when they can't. That's a good point. I think this is a good time uh, to invite our guests to join us to the podcast where then we'll start discussing the exercises for this week. Sounds great. He is a student in our class. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. How are you? Good. I'm just tucked in, drinking a cup of coffee and ready to go excited to talk about the complex quartet and the exercise this week that you did with your group yeah yeah let's get down to it shall we yeah excellent um so Lori and i have been talking about uh some of the our i guess our 
initial thoughts from starting reading the cases this week, starting with McDonald all the way to McCurcher, just wondering if perhaps you'd like to share what your overall um, thoughts and perceptions were of how the law developed in the conflicts quartet. Yeah, sure. Sorry, I'm just opening my notes, actually. Okay, so, um, yeah, uh, at least with McDonald. So, uh, I actually agreed with the decision in this. I know that um, it changed a lot with regards to how we deal with um, former clients. Mm-hmm. So, Sapinka's, there were two approaches in this, in McDonald's especially. Uh, I preferred Sapinka's approach to it as opposed to Corey's. Uh, so, um, yeah, at least with this. Um, so, you disagree with I, confining the scope of the conflict to the retainer only? No, no, I don't. I. I like the approach that Sapinka took with um, how you have to sort of, if you're going to have, if you're going to have former clients. Okay. So in, in, Mm -hmm. in this case, um, a firm dissolved, she shot off to another firm and then had to sort of deal with it like a conflict there. And I liked that. Sapinka sort of developed this notion that if you're going to do that, that's fine. It's okay if you still want to rep that client, but you have to um, you have to ensure that confidential confidential information stays confidential, and there are certain parameters mm-hmm. in which you have to sort of fall within that regime. And if you don't meet those parameters, then there's a pretty good chance that that information is going to get out to other lawyers that are within your firm. Right. And to prejudice your your former client. So um, I like that. She's just, I liked, I liked that Sapinka had said, okay, so even if you sign an affidavit that says, you know, I'm not going to release any of this information, that's not enough. There needs to be more. Okay. That's interesting. Cause that is something that, um, I was thinking about a lot, actually, that two-part rule. And the second part where it says, is there a risk that will be used against the client and no assurances will prevail? Like you just said, like you can't just write and do an affidavit that says, no, uh, Judge, I promise, like, you know, fingers crossed, pinky swear, I'm not going to release, I'm not going to share any information. But I was struck by that and just, you know, like to play the devil's advocate here, if if we're placing this burden or, I mean, maybe a responsibility you want to call it on lawyers that, for example, um, we're asking them that they should like keep quiet about their, their client's information, even if it offends their own moral code. You know, I mean, cause if you look at, for example, how strict the exceptions are to solicitor client privilege, we talked about those last week and in, in a sense of like innocence at stake and the, and the crime fraud one, like you have to, specifically the innocence at stake one, it has to, it's a very, very like tight uh, exception in a sense that it, it, it's very rare that it'll be used, I believe. And so this like the, it requires, like I said, the lawyer maybe sometimes to go against their own moral code. So we have 
we expect this of lawyers, but should the justice system then maybe actually place a little more of measure of trust and faith in lawyers, especially like the same kind of trust and faith they're sort of asking clients to have of lawyers going to them saying, okay, you need to be able to bear your soul to a lawyer because a lawyer is not going to say anything. So if, for example, then we place that responsibility on lawyers to take in all this information, even if it offends, and we're telling them, even if this offends your own moral code, you have a duty to these people and we expect this of them. Should we not then, should the justice system not then have a measure of like trust and faith in these lawyers and maybe like allow them to prepare an affidavit that makes them swear, I will not release this information when considering that we allow those for other things like an undertaking or, or, or other so measures. So I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. The, the justice system should probably put some faith, more faith into lawyers. That's fine. I agree with that. But I'm of the opinion, I, I really like Sapinka's point in this, in, in McDonald especially, where she says affidavits and undertakings are fine. You can have those. But without more, there's no guarantee that a lawyer in a firm can compartmentalize everything that they've known about their former client. And I think that's just, that is a human approach to, that's just a human approach. Like, just setting aside the law altogether. I mean, like, how, how but but do lawyers do that every day in a sense like especially say you you work in a small community and you know everybody you you can't go home and blab to your partner for example and you know pillow talk and and even release any information so i feel like this is something that lawyers probably like they do all the time so to say that you know human nature in, in terms of compartmentalizing that's essentially what lawyers are required to I do. Think you're yeah. also hitting on a different point, though. There, where if you look at the cases, the cases aren't ever really talking about like largely like the single lawyer. It's like talking about the firm. I mean, short of of course the case with Lazen mm -hmm. and um, the police officer and and that disclosure. But I think when you read the cases about the big firms, you can see the court is not allowing them to be one entity, right? Like they're still trying to force their way into being like you guys are a bunch of lawyers. And here's how you deal with conflicts. So I wonder if maybe the standard's also a little different when you consider um, compartmentalizing the small lawyer in the small town versus these big conglomerates of law firms that take on so many clients that are inevitably, you know, crossing over, just like in Saskatchewan with like the most recent case. Yeah, I kind of. Yeah, I agree with I agree with what Lori's saying. So I am not I'm not just disregarding Tiffany. What what you're saying too because i think there's merit in that especially in smaller towns of course but i think th this case was dealing with one of those bigger firms or at least it was dealing with a firm with multiple lawyers within that firm and the notion that a lawyer can keep a client's information strictly confidential based on an affidavit or an undertaking i think from a court's perspective realistically just realistically it's not enough so i like that they're fine if you do them, but Sapinka's approach, those alone without more are not, not enough to guarantee. guarantee that that information will stay confidential. I, I don't, but mm -hmm. I mean, we see that that line of reasoning develops even further in, uh, in RV Neal with the bright line approach. So. Right. I mean, I, I'm not to shift. But I mean, the bright line rule. The, the bright line rule also allows for consent, but it requires the like, so I mean, yeah, okay, lawyer, the clients can consent that to have the same lawyer, but it's also then like the court saying that there has to be a reasonable belief on the part of the lawyers 
And I mean, we all know this reasonable person, the man on the Omni Clapham bus mm -hmm. or whatever. I forget the, <laughs> the, uh, the expression. Um, you know, it's, it can be hard to interpret like what's what's reasonable, you know, with it's So even like it, it still takes away the choice of clients in, in a sense that, yeah, you can consent, but it still needs to be reasonable from the lawyer. And then if the lawyer has a reasonable belief, is, is an affidavit enough in that sense? To say, yeah, you know what, I, you know, I, I reasonably believe I can uh, represent these two clients. What, what, what is necessary to show this reasonable belief? It's, it's the objective, subjective. Is that the, the test? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, I, I just, I really think, I, I don't know. I'm fully in agreement with Sapinka on this one. Like affidavits, they just need to be, um, they, there just needs to be more. So with the bright line approach that Neil yeah. took. Uh, with this notion of consent, like you, you get uh, your clients to consent to the fact that you're going to represent both of them. That's, mm -hmm. I don't know. I find that that's a, that's a comfy middle ground. At least both parties are aware, Hey, you know, there are conflicting interests here. Are you okay with this? Right. Okay. Well, why don't we move on to talk about the exercises this week? What, um, what numbers did your group? Yeah. Tackle? So, I mean, I know I'm just, I'm representing my just, four other people in the group. So, you know, I'll preface this with, this is me speaking about the group's work, but so we did, we did right. question one and we did question two. Um, so the first, the first question, I don't know if you have them in front of you. Yeah, I, I did the, the first, our team did the first yeah, one as so well. Our, our team took sort of a two stance approach to the first question. So the first question is essentially asking, um, you are in a three-person law firm and you're representing two clients on an immigration matter and then one of them on a criminal matter but the other party is also the uh the the complainant and the chief prosecution witness so like where mm -hmm. do you go from there so our 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 group took sort of a, a two-step approach to this so we looked at it from the stance of okay well what if what if the immigration client was a former client as opposed to a concurrent client. And then we, so we went that route and we engaged um, rule 3.4-10 of the model code. And then we took a different stance and said, okay, well, what do you do if they were concurrent clients? Does that change the dynamic at all? So that's... And, and what did your team come... Like what well, conclusion? ultimately we held that uh, if... So if it's a concurrent situation... I had held because um, I wrote a little bit on this part and it was agreed on by the group. We had held that under 3.4-4 of the model code, you probably could. You would have to follow the bright line approach that's outlined in Neil and in the model code itself to make sure that both clients were aware of what was going on. You had their consent and then you could potentially represent them concurrently so far as the criminal lawyer had absolutely zero involvement in the um the immigration matter interesting mm. what about did your team discuss um this came up in, in my my group where perhaps um bogdan was that's the complainant in the criminal matter um didn't this idea of maybe perhaps they didn't actually have um a, dir a direct in interest because it's the crown 
the crown's interest in a criminal matter, not necessarily the complainants. The complainants, yeah, so, I mean. So, like, perhaps their their interests were not actually related. Yeah. So I, I struggled with that for a bit uh, because I had the same perspective as you did. But I when I was looking at three point four dash four and three point four dash twenty, I was I sort of found a not, I don't want to say a way around it because that's that's not right. So. Uh, I said, this is what I said. I said, in the current case, Bogdan's criminal interests are represented by a lawyer who are not affiliated with either Anna, if that's how you pronounce it, or Bogdan's refugee manor, matters, which was fine. But I did struggle with the crown perspective that you had just put forth. But the answer that I wrote, which I won't, I'm not going to repeat verbatim here, I think got around it just using using the model code so that I could find that the firm could rep properly. And and how like sorry how how using that uh, model code did did you apply that? Okay, so if you if you so basically yeah, I guess read, read your answer. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, no, 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 that's that's fine. So um, okay, well I, I will read it. So I said um, I'll try and paraphrase it as best I can. So we had said concurrent <laughs> representation of Bogdan in both the civil and criminal matter is permissible under three point four dash four of the model code. And it, it may not immediately lead to a breach of the firm's fiduciary duty to Anna, which is who they would owe the duty to. So we said that the rule 3.4-4 allows two or more lawyers in a firm to act for current clients with competing interests, so long as the information received remains confidential. This is in line with uh, McDonald Estate, which the, which the model okay. code later adopted. So the court in that case dealt with a lawyer's obligation to former clients when a lawyer transfers between firms. So this is the difference here because that's not what's going on in our case, but the principle remains applicable to our case regardless. So particular measures, this is coming from the court in McDonald, need to be taken by lawyers and firms when confidential information is received by a client or clients in one matter that could impact their interests in an unrelated matter. So in this case, it's the immigration uh, criminal dynamic, right? So, mm -hmm. To do this, it would include taking the appropriate screening measures to ensure the protection of confidential information, which is laid out in 3.4-20, that clients are represented by different lawyers, which we have here. So the criminal lawyer would be separate from the civil matter all like altogether. Express or implied consent is received from all of the parties involved, which would be Anna and Bogdan. Um, and as I, mm -hmm. I think I said this earlier, but in the current case, Bogdan's criminal interests are already represented by a lawyer who's not affiliated with the civil matter so this is in line with 3.4-4d so in keeping with the rest of its obligations the firm would have to ensure that it takes the appropriate measures to meet the obligations noted above to ensure that the you know that the spillover of information doesn't impact the interests of the parties so that's where that, that's where we went right. with it um but we did okay. so in interesting no, no, no. oh sorry go ahead I was just going to say, Lori and I had talked a little earlier about um, about, for example, the the McDonald case where um, the law society did in fact yeah. institute standards and they followed those standards, but the court held that even though there was technical compliance, there was no compliance with the spirit. So, um, I guess how how would you address that in your question? Where if they followed the model code and followed these rules, do you think a court might still find that in spirit? Um, it, the, these provisions yeah, weren't actually enough. I mean, all you can do is argue the, the merits of your case and then hope that the court 
agrees with you. I mean, I feel like a lot of this stuff will be done on a case-by-case situation regardless. I mean, we did the best that we could to justify what we were doing. And if a court a court finds for us, then great. But, I mean, you can never be truly you, – you never really know for sure unless you litigated it. Right? Yeah. But I guess would you say there's any other measures that you could uh, that you could take to, I guess um, – like, do you think it's enough to then to just follow the model code provisions and say we did our job and, and, and that's it at the end of the day? Or do you think that, you know, maybe maybe there needs to be? more? Uh, so I think we can use the tools that we have to the best of our abilities, which in this case would be both. The, I, I don't want to I think the model code supplement it with the case law. Now, I know that the model code is built largely off of the case law, but I think there's merit in looking at the case law to see whether or not the facts of one of those cases or the cases that have dealt with this sort of situation before align with yours so you can give a stronger argument to help supplement what the model code is already providing you with. Does that make sense? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, these are the four major cases that we looked at with regards to um, this issue. But, I mean, there'd be plenty out there that I'm sure have been litigated that you could supplement your model code arguments with to help ground your reasoning yeah i mean ultimately our team decided that no you couldn't mm-hmm. represent the two so i think it's interesting that uh i have another example of a, a a group that said no you know you they'd be okay so it's just uh you know and that just goes to show the nature of of legal issues anyway where you're going to have people who come at it from different points and and that's why you go to court right. that's why so things I'm, end up in court I'm just from a purely so. curiosity um standpoint and i know that i shouldn't be asking the questions because i'm the i'm the guest so i apologize for this but i i i just no, uh, right ahead. okay so <laughs> you're right we do there are two different dynamics here so we went with yes we could right now i'm just curious like so how did you mm-hmm. guys arrive at your conclusion well we applied the blight the excuse me the bright line rule here and found that the interests were in fact um directly adverse even though um, we also argue the alternative, maybe you could look at it, that it was actually the, the crown that has the legal interest and not Bogdan. Um, but, uh, yeah, just a straight application of the bright line rule. We felt that, um, there was the, like, and, and I, I don't believe there was anything in there about consent either that, um, Bogdan or Ahana had given consent for these people to, for the lawyers to represent both. So in the end, we just, we felt that, um, I guess, I guess better safe than no, sorry. No, that's fair. <laughs> we um we did engage the bright line rule as well, but um yeah no that's a uh, that's fair. Yeah, how about yourself, Lori? Did your team yeah, discuss we, this, um, this exercise? So yeah, we went through the code and tried to find some meaning, but ultimately relied a lot on the case law, um, and we did use a bright line rule. Um, but part of the discussion um we had was talking about like we don't even know what form um these uh this case will go through like we don't know if it will be heard by a court or a refugee tribunal etc and whether the credibility is essential mm-hmm. um so yeah so like, oh. uh, like i say like a quote-unquote cutthroat cross-examination could affect all that and we did also um then look at uh uh the mcdonald estate rule and we found that because it's a small firm like it's almost inevitable you even however unlikely kind of need to discuss the case um and kind of felt similarly but nothing yeah. drastically different from your point which is uh why i didn't say anything but 
I know it's I just think it's so interesting that you can find meaning in some of these roles more than others um and how they're all kind of interconnected but like depending on how you look at weighing them I don't know I, I, when you guys were talking I was like wow I didn't even think about that but that is a good point <laughs> that, and that's funny because when you just brought up yours I didn't even think about yeah. that um added component about credibility you know and in refugee tribunals versus um, a, a criminal matter. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting, you know, how, you know, you bring different people in these groups and they come at it from so many different things that you, you just, uh, you get to a different Yeah, level. and I don't know about you guys, but yeah, I, I think I, the... Oh, sorry. No, 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 go ahead, Lori. Uh, the challenges of technology, but I think constantly of, of um, I, usually there's people, not lawyers assessing risks, like, um, uh, firms I've heard of mostly have, you know, anytime you get a new client on, you have to complete a form and you send it off to someone else and then they perform the the conflicts search because um, clearly, like, there's sometimes mm -hmm. you, you can't even know that like, someone is a client of your firm um, if, if you're really following this, like, separation. Um, I keep going to call it church and state, like, but, like, you know, the separation um, between your clients. But I, I just think of how, like, practically for small firms, like, how overwhelming this must be in order to really check. And, like, how properly can you perform, like, an adequate conflicts check if you're aware of every client because you have to do the – does that make sense? Like, you kind of constantly need to be spending so much time thinking about this. I think that's a great point. Yeah, actually. and and it goes back to a point about. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say it goes back to like a point we talked about in the last episode, uh, or last podcast, where about technology. And so it sounds like there's increasingly this need for uh, lawyers to be competent in technology because now you can't. I don't think lawyers could can say now, for example, well you know, in a small firm, well, it's just too overwhelming for us to do this in every single one. So we need to be given a little bit of a pass, if you will. And I'm not saying that the, you know, that's been the case in the, in the past, but I, I think there's an increasing, um, I guess, uh, responsibility on lawyers to become well acquainted with technology that can help with these things that can help with identifying conflicts and they need to institute them even in smaller firms. And so it really shows, I think the increased reliance in, t in technology um, to combat these issues because conflicts, the courts have shown in, in these, in this quartet that conflicts is, is not a, a, a trifle matter. Like it's, it's something that all lawyers need to be alive to this fact. And uh, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble if you don't even do your due diligence. And, and now maybe your due diligence is, is getting the technology. Yeah. I mean, I can't, so I can't speak to this technology argument because I wasn't privy to your previous podcast, but um, I, I agree with Lori's point or at least the essence of it, where implementing these rules specifically in smaller firms and smaller cities where, you know, there are only so many, like so many lawyers and the population is so small dealing with this would be pretty challenging, especially because we have a duty to represent, you know, everyone if we can. Right. Mm -hmm. So to disassociate based on these grounds would be quite difficult in those smaller communities. How do you ensure representation for these people? when you have to sort of play this balancing act between all of these different rules, specifically the, these ones. So I think at some point it, it does become quite challenging for firms in rural areas or smaller areas that have to, you know, <clears throat> at one point deal with this, but simultaneously trying to ensure that everybody has proper representation. I also think, which is, you know, 
Sorry, yeah, I was just going to say very quickly because it's like not fully on point because the cases we've dealt with have been pretty straightforward in terms of conflicts. But I think of like globally yeah. how, especially in the business law and just in the business world, we're seeing more and more mergers and more and more conglomerates mm. than independent firms. And I wonder how, you know, keeping track of all that, because at some point there there's going to become a point where there is very little separation between, you know, entities because they're all just kind of formed by the same people. And I wonder how those mm -hmm. things will go. And that's not a thing anyone needs to answer because it's very off topic. But when you were talking to that's why I was thinking, I was like, wow, <laughs> there's going to be a point soon where like, it's going to be impossible to tell yeah. because just the distribution of wealth has become so expansive. There's like really only a few, you know, companies or people of interest who like own companies in certain areas. Like it's, it'd be quite challenging to find people who aren't representing them. No, I think it's a great point. And at some point, like, obviously, the lawyers need to be cognizant during these mergers, like, okay, how is this going to affect the clients that we've had previously versus how is it going to affect clients that we're, you know, as we're merging in? How do we balance this? So, I mean, I guess the practical question is, the firm that's merging with a larger firm, for example, or the, the larger firm that's absorbing the smaller firm, uh, on who's like, so who needs to be cognizant of like, how are clients going to be affected by this merger? Is it the, the larger firm that's sort of absorbing or is it the smaller firm that's bringing the clients over and being absorbed? Or is it like a, a dual task that both everyone just sort of needs to be cognizant of? Mm. That's a really yeah, good question. Mm. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't mean, I mean, I don't mean to, <laughs> no, no, no. no one needs to answer this. I'm just, I'm just sort of bouncing off your point, Lori, where as these things become more and more popular as they are, smaller firms or larger firms absorbing smaller firms at, at what point do this cognizance play into it? Like who needs to be aware of what and what's happening, the sort of transition of resources and clients being among that. Absolutely. So, no, I completely agree. I was just making fun of Tiffany taking the deep breath. I was like, wow. I'm answer. I was like, wow, I'm like, <laughs> the yeah. solution is here in front of us. <laughs> yeah. It's really, it really got me thinking because I do know, um, um, that lawyers, when they're like wrapping up their practice, for example, you can't just this idea of like commitment to the client's cause, right? You can't just walk away, be like, peace out, you know, it's been nice. Um, but you really, you know, you, you have to, you have to pass, pass on that case. Again, you have to get their permission as well, like to, to give it off to somebody. So you're right. Like, is, do you have that responsibility at that point to identify those conflicts and say, no, I'm sorry, um, you can't take this case because there's a potential conflict. Or, yeah, to your point, Tom, is it is it on the receiving end where they say, no, we can't take right. this one because there's a there's a conflict. And 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 wow. Yeah. What is <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's for people um, more experienced than us to figure out. But I think something um, as uh, we take practice, think about it. Sorry, Tom. No, no, that's OK. Yeah, um, it was just something that sort of came to my mind as as Lori was making her point. So, I mean, I'd didn't expect a fully fleshed out answer because I don't have one either. The great thing about this so. podcast is we just mostly um, have big thoughts but have very few answers. In fact, I think we often come away with more Which... questions than we did answer any questions. But that's fair. I think, you know, we're law students. We're not lawyers yet. We aren't out in the field practicing. So we don't know. I mean, we know the theory side and we can apply some of that theory in a practical, you know, fact scenario, but we don't know everything yet. And we probably never will actually, actually, when we went into practice. Yeah. But I mean, this, I feel like this is stuff that we'll, we'll pick up as we're out there. 
Exactly. And considering how quickly these sort of cases, like, you know, the years between the, the um, cases were like that extreme, like who knows by the time we come out and practice, you know, there's going to be a different um, school of thought on a lot of these issues. But I yeah. think it's really important to, and this is like separate from the big question of the podcast. So Tiffany's Rose this week can get me off. But I think it's also yes. really important, um, especially as we're, I don't know about you guys, but I'm feeling the 3L, like, sense of doom like i'm gonna be out in the world there's not gonna be anyone, like you know really have my back <laughs> anymore um but i think it's really important to not to still be a student you know and like to continue to be a student throughout your practice and not mm-hmm. feel like you have it kind of figured out because you have like the textbooks and you know a couple of answers in front of you um and that's what i'm really enjoying about ethics because there is a sense of like ethics by necessity changes with time and so like the ethics may never truly be figured out because you know the sense of what's fair and the purpose of the justice system will continue to change um but yeah I, this is a, a point that i was just thinking of when we were talking about that but no i think that's a good point too and like ethics i think ethics do change as our moral compasses change in the western world at least like i feel like ethics is largely derived from our own internal morality so as as things change ethics will change and so will these approaches to how we deal with clients or our duties to clients i think it's inevitable at some point i'm not saying within the next five (laughs) years but yeah absolutely well i'd like to thank you very much uh tom for joining us um your comments uh very insightful um laurie as well thank you again for co-hosting and we will see you next week (laughs) 